Hey, this is Tyler Murphy, and you're listening to the Lonely Painter Podcast. We're recording this one in the evening. We've had the whole day to meditate and think, and we're fine. Garth started back up a job, and so his mornings are taken a little bit. It's disastrous, is what it is. <laughs> sad. It is sad. It's not like a nice morning of getting up, having some coffee, reading, thinking about life. Get right to the day of grind. Uh, what are we? What do you want to talk about today? This week? You finished. You finished Heretics by Chesterton. I did. I just finished a chapter where he is talking about Mister McCabe, who is critiquing him. Yeah, I grabbed that. Yeah, we got to read. We got the book that. right here. If just a quick plug. Mm-hmm. If you like C.S. Lewis, you will love G.K. Chesterton. I've never had a writer where I just read a line and just have to openly just be like, oh, so good. <laughs> we'll just sit one time and I were reading together in the morning. we just sit and look at like, bro, bro, you got to hear this. L- l- listen to this. He's just, it's so much fun. I was reading so him in the gallery today laughing out loud multiple times. <laughs> uh, okay, so if I if I remember right... Uh, in the Mr. McCabe chapter, he's talking about... Uh, divine frivolity. Divine frivolity, yeah. And just, okay, read the... Will you read the opening Yeah, line? the opening line kind of gives you the whole... Uh, gives you a good perspective or a good picture of what, what he's going for. Um, a critic once remonstrated me... Uh, excuse me, a critic once remonstrated with me, saying uh, with an air of indignant reasonableness, if you must make jokes... At least you need not make them on such serious subjects. I replied with a natural simplicity and wonder, about what other subjects can one make jokes except serious subjects? I love that. I think it's funny because it kind of goes along well, with... He actually makes a really great joke about the... He, he, makes a, he actually has a dig at the Pope in this. If you yeah. keep, keep reading, uh, it's basically... He's, he's, making a, he's making a pretty snarky remark at the Pope, I would say. Okay, well, I'll keep reading on because it's not very far to that part. Um, So picking up right after that, he says, It is quite useless to talk about profane jesting. All jesting is in its nature profane, in the sense that it must be the sudden realization that something which thinks itself solemn is not so very solemn after all. If a joke is not a joke about religion or morals, it is a joke about police magistrates or scientific professors or undergraduates dressed up as Queen Victoria. And people joke about the police magistrates more than they joke about the Pope, not because the police magistrate is, more fril- is a more frivolous subject, but, on the contrary, because the police magistrate is a much more serious subject than the Pope. Okay, stop right there. So I think what he's saying there is people don't actually take the Pope that seriously. Yeah, which is it's funny because it is the, <laughs> the idea it's like the greatest, you know, head of things that, like I said, all things that are solemn of, like, of the Catholic Church, of something that is the most serious and to be taken with most gravity. He's like, it's not all that serious. Yeah, but people actually do take police uh, policemen seriously because they can actually mess up their lives. Yeah, that's exactly. what he goes on to say. I think exactly. I'm trying to find the other part of it. Um, is it in that chapter that he? No, it's a different one. But it's funny because it does go along lines of um, what people talking about free speech today and what like 
comedians are talking about like I listen to Joe Rogan so they're talking about this all the time that comedians need to be outside of you know that they're kind of the last bastion of free speech in a world that feels very overrun by political correctness and whatever else and He's oh, like, well, can't, we can't oh, joke can't about, that. about that. Like, you can't say right. You know, like you know, yeah. Dave Chappelle's new Sticks and Stones. Like he just went after everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, it's kind of funny because that's what he's saying. He's like, you know, you you can't really have a joke that isn't about something serious. He's like, those are the things that almost need to be joked about more than anything. Yeah, he makes a good point about how somebody like Mr. McCabe wants to do away with. Uh, with like religious laws and instead put in the moral um, like secular laws but what he's saying is that but then what you end up having is uh, laws that could be broken replaced by laws that can't yeah I've just found that part yeah can you read that Um, okay so He's talking about, um, oh my gosh, this is all really very, very good. Um, he says, this, it's actually it's a good point for basically what we're talking about nowadays. Um, he says, um, I may start that uh, in saying that Mr. McCabe is an error in supposing that the danger which I anticipate from the disappearance of religion is the increase of sensuality. On the contrary, I should be inclined to anticipate a decrease in sensuality because I anticipate, I anticipate a decrease in life. I do not think that under modern Western materialism, we should have anarchy. I doubt whether we should have enough individual valor and spirit even to have liberty. It is quite an old-fashioned fallacy to suppose that our objection to skepticism is that it removes the discipline from our life. Our objection to skepticism is that it removes the motive power. Materialism is not a thing which destroys mere restraint. Materialism itself is the great restraint. The McCabe School advocates a political liberty but it denies spiritual liberty. That is, it abolishes the laws which could be broken and substitute laws that cannot. And that is the real slavery. Oh I don't even know how to begin breaking that down. <laughs> but I think that's true. I think that that's the great thing we've seen. Um, not to get, even though we like to get philosophical, not to get too philosophical, talking about the idea of like postmodernism and you know relativism subjective reality you can kind of do what you want he's like it's the problem in it is not actually that you will go about and do whatever you want the real problem is is that you'll have no drive to do anything which i think is kind of true i think it's very true in a lot of ways it's not just oh we'll just all become hedonists it's that we'll be like well what matters what should i do you know this drive for meaning this drive for value drive for any sort of, well, a drive for any sort of drive, really. Like, why should I do anything? And that's the real slavery in a way. It's like, well, nothing matters, then I won't do anything in that. That's just it. You just kind of exist then. You don't live. You don't have movement in any direction. You're not building. You're not creating. You're just kind of, I don't know, existing, I suppose. Yeah. But, um... Would, would you say, is there something... Is that, is that somehow linked to the culture of political correctness? The death of religious... Uh, it's re- a replacement. Re- religious morality and the rise of political correctness, which actually is itself a more 
yeah. restraining morality. For sure. Like, I was thinking about this. I was like, because I grew up in the church, and I think the the same, you could say, like, the spirit of, like, growing up in the evangelical church, kind of mainstream, charismatic, whatever, it's a very similar feel of, like, don't do this, you know, why? Because it's bad. And, you know, you don't want to set a bad example, and it's it's not good. You know, it's not that it's a law, it's just kind of a bad thing to do. And you exert kind of a social pressure to make sure that people don't do it. So it's not like don't lie because the truth is inherently better or it's a sin or whatever. It's like, well, it's bad. And then that'll look bad and people won't like it. So to me, it's very, it's a very, very similar feel to the political correct movement of now. Like, well, you shouldn't say that. That's not a good thing to say. Why? Because it's bad. And it makes people feel bad. You should do that. It's just not a good thing to do. I'm like, not because there's this inherent beauty towards like I said again truth or you know love anything like that it's just like it's, it's a bad thing to do and, and and you have to exert some social pressure on the speaker who's saying these bad things in order to get them to stop you know which is what we do it's like he said we did what we didn't like and now he gets exiled from mainstream thought you know what I mean okay so I think it's, right. it is okay. a weird religious feel to get to enforce your morality like I don't think you should use that word. And so you did. And now it's like, I must, like I said, like excommunicate you okay. from, well, from my life, but also from like having a platform of sorts from being a part of the group. Uh-huh. So I think it's very similar, like to the political correct movement. It feels very religious, you know, that you need to walk the right. party line, but you need to walk out the values of, of the, the church. Right. The basically, yeah, that you have to do, yeah. This and this and this and this. Yeah. And not this and this and this and this. You must do these things in order to be part of this. Right. You know. And to break those rules is like, you know, it's yeah, a complete death. Like right. You can't, just, you can't break those rules. Because this is really, really serious. Yeah. It's so serious. Which is why you must joke about it. Right. <laughs> but you can't. You can joke about it. I love it. It's hilarious. This guy wrote this in what, like 1905? He's clever. Well, I think that's such a great point that he's saying, like, um, actually, the only thing that you actually can make a joke at is something that is serious. Yeah. You can't make a joke at something that is already a joke. Yeah. It's like when you are self-deprecating and somebody tries to, like, make a joke about it, like, oh, yeah, you are. I'm like, it's not funny. Like, I already made the joke about it. You can't try and double up on a joke I just made, you know? Right. <laughs> it's like, that's the point of self-deprecation. Um. Okay, so here's something that I absolutely loved. Um, but you're moving into areas that I haven't read yet? No, no, no. This is still in the McCabe chapter. Okay, okay. okay. Okay, so we already talked about this one. The idea of, like, um, one person singing and no one else singing. Oh, yeah. So good. This one, I, it did. It changed my life, actually, when I read it. <laughs> I was like, that's so good. Um, so he's talking about this materialistic world very much in the vein of what we just talked about. Um, and he says, uh, science means specialism. And specialism means oligarchy. If you want to establish the habit of trusting particular men to produce particular results, uh, you leave the door open for the equally natural demand that you should trust particular men to do particular things in government and, and coercing of men, right? So giving more people power to exert it over you and over everybody else rather than kind of keeping the power with yourself. Um, so he goes on a little bit. And because said, they know best. Because well, they've yeah, they studied it, so they know much better than right. me. Yeah. Um, he goes, uh, but if we look at the progress of our scientific civilization, we see a gradual increase everywhere of the specialist over the popular function. 
wants men sang together round a table in chorus. Now one man sings alone, for the absurd reason that he can sing better. If scientific civilization goes on, only one man will laugh, because he can laugh better than the rest. Yeah. I'm like, I love that. I absolutely love that. It made me think, um, back to soccer, like, I mean, we all love listening to, like, Ariana Grande. Like, oh, super great. You know, she's got a beautiful voice. Or, you know, Celine Dion, Michael Bublé, somebody like that. And we enjoy that. But if you've ever listened to, like, one of my favorite uh, uh, things to listen to, my cousin loves this team. It's Liverpool, a team in England. And they came up with this chant. I don't know where they came from. Um, but it's something like, it's like, ale, 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 It's very simple, and then they have different verses that go with it. But when you hear 70,000 people doing it, yeah, it gives you chills. Yeah. Or they, they also sing, they're very famous for singing uh, You'll Never Walk Alone by Jerry and the Pacemakers. And when you hear 70,000 people belting that song out, <laughs> it brings you to, like, right away. Hmm. And if you listen to, like, any of those guys, they're all awful singers, you know? It's right. some pitchy whatever just some you know 40 year old english dude with a beer gut like no training in his life but he's belting that song out with all yeah. the passion in his heart and it is it's better than anything you've ever heard yeah and i'm like that's that's the truth like to think that like oh well celine Dion should sing because she's so much better i'm like no i would take like i said sixty thousand drunken english hooligans singing <laughs> it over celine Dion any day no there's one more part. Let's see if I can find it. You can go ahead. I'm trying to find one more part that also makes that point. Mm, man. Oh, here it is. I'm trying to think. I, I don't know that I have much to share. This. He, um, the, the second line that he just kind of reinforces it is uh, begins to talk about the ballet. And he's like how the, the, yeah. the desire to dance as a whole, as a, as a group, has gone down because we'll just watch the one person dance because they're so good at it. And he goes, uh, this, uh, oh, this is the whole essence of decadence. The effacement or the drawing of attention to, um, uh, uh, excuse me, the effacement of five people who do a thing for fun by one person who does it for money. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's so good. Well, they're so good. Okay, they I'm, but I'm trying to remember, how does he, how does he get to this? Why is he making this point uh, through, okay, so McCabe... McCabe is, um, McCabe in one of his books is critiquing Chesterton and Chesterton in, in this book includes basically the whole section from, from McCabe's, Mm -hmm. uh, essay. And basically he says, look, uh, you know, it's really nice that Chesterton takes us seriously, um, uh, he being, I guess, McCabe representing this school of of materialism and and neat, and believing that it's time to leave religion behind. Yeah, it's very serious and, and it's very like you to, have to walk this line. You must. This is how we must act. You know, putting away these neg- these you know former whatever and moving forward in much more almost stoic, you would say, I guess, scientific and cold fashion. Right. Like because, we need to approach this with solemnity and you know with seriousness. Right, because because here now, after the Enlightenment, we are moving into, mm-hmm. um, before us is two paths, is kind of, I think, what yeah. what McCabe says, is that we can either continue down this path that we've always been on, where we believe in some higher power that is pulling the strings, yeah. and that, um, that, that we have some allegiance to. Yeah. 
I suppose. Or we can move towards uh, rationalism mm -hmm. and well, that like this idea of rationalism thinking. and perfection okay. is all, is almost attainable. Like we can make ourselves so much better if we put off like these, you know, faulty things like religion right. and this and that and and you know all this you know comedic nonsense, this frivolity as he calls it. You know, like yeah. that that's the thing that's holding us back. That if we become much more focused and diligent and excellent, you know, right. that we can make ourselves, we can kind of ascend the ladder to heaven at some level yeah. in terms of a civilization. Yeah. That what the way to go forward is to, you know, approach things with such, you know, gravity and weight to them. Yeah. And he's saying no, uh, or um, uh, Chesterton's saying, he's like, no, if you want that, he's like, you embrace it, you know, embrace the frivolity, embrace the, you know, the five men singing imperfectly because they sing together for fun, which is pure and you know, beautiful in its own way rather than like, well, no, we shouldn't sing. You know, you can't sing. You're not a good singer. Look, this one person because they've trained and that makes them more qualified and better. Yeah. That's the part I think that's interesting. It's like, well, they're better. So therefore they have the right to sing. He's like, no, oh. he has a better laugh. So he'll be the only one who laughs. Um, okay. I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember and, uh, yeah, he ranges in that chapter just a little bit. He does, but it's all really, really good, and it and it, it all comes together. Okay, so he moves from. I had it, but I lost it. Okay, so he moves from McCabe's uh, section into saying, "Oh, he says, the thing is, is that you can you can speak the truth in a handful of different ways. Mm -hmm. Either you can be solemn." in the way that you present your truth or you can tell it through jokes yeah but either way as long as it's the truth it doesn't really matter the way in which we present it so if the point that the comedian is making is in the end the truth it doesn't really matter that he it doesn't really matter that he used a whole bunch of jokes to get to that same point that the preacher, that the solemn preacher on Sunday uh, uses serious, contemplative, you know, well-thought-out sermons, long sentences. Have you found that part in there? Yeah, oh, I found, well, here, the, the final line, he goes, um, or the final line of the whole chapter, he says, To sum up the whole matter very simply, if Mr. McCabe asks me why I import frivolity into discussion of the nature of man, I answer, because frivolity is part of the nature of man. If he asks me why I introduce what he calls paradoxes into uh, philosophical uh, problems, I answer, because all philosophical problems tend to become paradoxical. <laughs> paradoxical. If he objects to me treating, uh, to my treating of life riotously, I reply that life is a riot. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's the nature of it. Well, and he even goes, here, can I have, can mm -hmm. I have the book? <laughs> I mean, he goes on to say, to, like, find what he would say are examples of even God himself within the Bible also being, telling jokes. Yeah. And, and almost, he would say, well, he says. <laughs> well, the line he makes is like, uh, he's like, in the same book where God says, or it's stated that one should not use the Lord's name in vain, he's like. Job is then put through, you know, the greatest test where you're basically going to want to curse and use the Lord's name in vain more than any other time. <laughs> like, which is right. 
Great. Uh, okay, wait, 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 wait. Um, okay, let me just let me just read for just a <laughs> Should second. Should we just do a podcast where we just read because <laughs> that's, 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 that's kind of what we're doing. In short, Mr. McCabe is under the influence of a primary fallacy, which I have found very common in men of the clerical type. So, man, he's shooting at all all parties here. Nobody's safe with Chesterton. <laughs> Love it. Numbers of clergymen have from time to time reproached me for making jokes about religion, and they have almost always invoked the authority of that very sensible commandment which says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Of course, I pointed out that I was not in any conceivable sense taking the name in vain. To take a thing and make a joke out of it is not to take it in vain. It is, on the contrary, to take it in, or to take it, and use it for an uncommonly good object. To use a thing in vain means to use it without use. But a joke may be exceedingly useful. It may contain the whole earthly sense, uh, not to mention the whole heavenly sense of a situation. And those who find in the Bible the commandment can also find in the Bible any number of the jokes. In the same book in which God's name is fenced from being taken in vain, God himself overwhelms Job with a torrent of terrible levities. Which Garth and I keep coming back to reading that part in Job where he says, gird your loins, man. And And then he just has this torrent of things where he's basically saying, yeah, where were you when I did all of the, did, you know, when I put the stars in the sky and yeah. made the, you know, all the, all the wonders of the world, which is interesting. Like we typically read that as God reprimanding Job and, but here it seems as though, as though Chesterton is interpreting that as it's a joke in some way that it's a, it's a torrent of terrible levities which i think is really i don't know if i as i read that if i can agree with that but i as i read job if i have that same no but there's interpretation but that's a dark humor about it a little bit maybe yeah yeah it's like in the the worst situation okay he's i think this is a little more concise here he says the same book which says that god's name must not be taken vainly takes easily and carelessly about God laughing and God winking. And at least for me, it has been a joy to go back and read the Gospels with that in mind, that perhaps even some of the things that Jesus is saying is that he's winking at his audience. Yeah. Because I, I made this point, uh, I've, I've made this point a couple times to you, Garth, in the last couple of days. But just the other day um, at the church that I go to, we're talking about this uh, this question of how do we face change. And one of the guys in the congregation, uh, Matt, asked me if I would interview him a little bit. And so I shared a little bit about this topic of facing change. And then called up this guy to uh for for me to interview him and uh and uh, what i said is so now we're going to talk to a guy who has faced 
whose life ha- really hasn't changed in the last, I don't know, 10 years, right, Seth? 10 years? Life hasn't changed. And of course, everybody who goes to this community knows that his life has faced a lot of change. But if you were to just read a transcript of that, it might be hard to discern the joke in that. And so I wonder, and maybe this is completely blasphemous, <laughs> but I wonder like when Jesus is, you know, giving the Sermon on the Mount and he's saying, blessed are the poor, blessed are, are, yeah. are uh, those who mourn, blessed are the weak in spirit. If, if he's saying that to a whole bunch of people who are the mm-hmm. outsiders and the low of life like that's kind of funny. He maybe like he's yeah. maybe saying it's kind of like, guys, we're we're the greatest. Yeah. But there's also a <laughs> there's it's funny, but there's also a sincerity to it because we all know that just because you're wealthy doesn't mean that your life is yeah. any better. And so it's almost like it's almost like a, it's almost like a kind way of of saying like. Uh, <laughs> I know it might be tempting to want to be like these people who we perceive as having all this power and perfection in their life, that they've attained something. But the truth is, guys, it really doesn't get any better than this right here. <laughs> it doesn't here. get any better. Yeah. <laughs> and then even the part where he says... Um, you know, so just be, 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 perfect. be, be your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect as I am and as a, your heavenly father is perfect. Yeah. If I take that as, if I, if I take that as him being really serious, mm-hmm. I come away pretty despondent, like crap. Yeah. Oh man. I don't, I don't know how to do that. But if I take that as, wait a minute, he was talking to a bunch of people who were obsessed with perfection we're obsessed with knowing exactly the line in the sand that the mm-hmm. law was drawing and wanting to, you know, know whether it's black or white in any, in any given action. Mm-hmm. If, if he's just, if he just kind of comes along to those people and says, oh, you know what, you're so obsessed with this. Why don't you just be perfect? Yeah. <laughs> like, like me. Yeah. Like me. Well, the, the then, is, then that I don't know. To me, that it's like, oh, maybe he's maybe he's kind of winking as he says that. Like, you're not yeah. get, listen. You're not gonna do it. Well, there's there's something interesting about when you do laugh at something, you engage with it at some level. So, I mean, they say that like, oh, you know, if you have a big sense or good sense of humor, it's a sign of intelligence and and things like that. But and I, I guess there's some probably some truth to that. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there is, but um, like to to laugh at it is to like I said to kind of interact with that idea with something. So we watched, you know, like In Bruges, one of my favorite movies. Mm. Very dark movie with a lot of interesting themes, and it deals with the whole idea of redemption and somewhat salvation and purgatory and yeah, I guess redemption is just the best part. But it's you know played out between two hitmen and the, you know the the funny uh, one of the guy. Well, I don't want to spoil it too much, but. One of the guys wants to kill himself, and uh, I don't he's... care about if we spoil movies. For... I know, but I like the movie though. I don't want it to spoil okay. people. All right, but... all right. 
But anyway, one of the guys wants to kill himself, and um, he's stopped right before it happens by the guy who's his hitman buddy who's been sent to kill him because of something the other guy had done. So he goes there to shoot him, but then he realizes the guy's about to kill himself, and he stops him. You know? right. And it's a very strange and paradoxical situation. And that you just have to laugh at. You know, yeah. like, what is going on? Yeah. You know? and, and a minute ago, you were going to kill this guy, but yeah. now that he wants to kill himself, you don't want to kill him? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you're like, this is so strange, but, you know, you're laughing. It's, it's, it's funny, and, but it's intriguing at the same time. And you, you, you're faced with that question. You're not faced with the whole weight of it. I think that's why laughter is very important. You're faced with, like, a manageable part of, like, oh, gosh, that's so weird. But that's interesting, isn't it, though? That, like, you're so driven, like, he's going to go kill this guy, but then he realizes, like this moral thing kind of hits him or this sense of wrong or something where he's like, oh, this guy shouldn't do this, that he needs to, you know, there's something good he can do, you know, and then it's somehow actually, actually, okay, so there's a, a line somewhere in here that it's like, until we understand that something may not be, we cannot grasp what is. So until, until this man realizes this hit first hitman realizes that Colin Farrell is about to take his own life Mm -hmm. he cannot grasp the beauty of Colin Farrell's life yeah yeah I hear you yeah he all of a sudden is confronted with oh my gosh life is this precious thing yeah yeah and I like I said I'm I don't I guess humor does that to some extent um for the viewer, anyway, because you more like look at Slink from the outside. Like, you know, he's very serious in the moment, even though if you looked at it objectively, you'd have to laugh uh, because it's just so strange. But, but like I said, I think it makes it manageable. It makes it something kind of a really heavy subject. You can laugh about it and engage at a, a level which you can you can handle. Yeah. Whereas if you just had to take it straight up and it was completely serious and you know no choice but to just take it, I don't know if you could. You know. Yeah. But then it also reminds me of um, Carl Jung. He says. Um, this is something that Jordan Peterson has pointed out, mm-hmm. <laughs> that the precursor to the savior is the fool or the jester, you know, that he can say things and, um, and not get in trouble, you know, but that he also kind of has his eye on the truth at some level, you know, and you see that all the time in, you know, in Shakespeare's plays that the jester can always say things to the king and he's above reproach, you know, mm-hmm. no one can say anything about him, like, cause he's a fool, he's a jester, what... What does he have to say? It's just funny. makes you laugh, but at the same time, it's like he's telling the truth, hmm. which I, I think is a very interesting idea, you know? And I think well, we, all, we all do that at some <laughs> level, like so with a joke. Yeah. You know, that's why I think there's some truth that, you know, listening to comedians is important. They can yeah. bring up a subject that maybe you don't want to hear, you know? Like Bill Burr is great. He brings this up. <laughs> oh, believe all women? You know, Really? All of them, you know, we're getting, and it's like, <laughs> it's a really bad subject, but then you laugh and then you're like, okay, we all know that's insane. All women, yeah. like there's not one crazy one in there that you shouldn't believe. Like, so then you break it down from there. Like, okay, so, so there's something ridiculous there, you know, yeah. but that's the thing. Like, you know, you say that and it sounds terrible and you can't even go near that subject. Then you realize like somebody makes a joke about it. You're like, oh, okay. Like we can at least say that there's woman in the, one woman in this world who's completely crazy and probably not trustworthy, you know what I'm saying? And you laugh about it because you're like, that's just it, you know? <laughs> but uh, but then it hints at like a greater truth of like, okay, well, like, what, what are we really doing here? What are, what's really going on? And it can kind of strip away that, you know, that really emotional, um, that really emotional aspect of it that just doesn't allow you to see it clearly because you're like, oh, it's only this thing. And I'm like, 
But is it though? Well, is right. It? It's it's it strips yeah. away that black and white dichotomy. Yeah. And allows for like, oh wait a minute, actually this subject is a lot more nuanced yeah. than I ever than I ever realized, and this is going to require a lot more thinking than just this is all bad, this is all good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like they are completely all There's horrible no other on way this side. Yeah. Those who don't vote the same way as me are completely horrible. Yeah. Evil people and everybody on my side is completely good. Yeah. Like, oh wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah, if you can't find something to laugh about on your own <laughs> on your own side, I'm like you're not looking at things, you know. <laughs> It's like, like, you know, I mean, Trump, easy to talk about all the crazy, you know, crazy things like Kofef, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, people are like, oh, I just can't imagine. I'm like, well, look at your own candidate for just a little bit, you know. <laughs> if you can't laugh at the Cl- slick willy, you know, you can't laugh at the Clintons a little bit. It's like, then you're not looking at things, you know. <laughs> so I think you have to, at some level, be able to, to laugh at yourself. Well, yeah, laugh at yourself, but also things you hold. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so, uh, what else is going on in your life, guys? <laughs> and on <laughs> that note. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think if there's any, I, uh, I, I had to talk at this church thing on Sunday. I'm trying to think if there's any. Anything that you learned there? Well, yeah. I haven't read a book Any in two points days. Worth, worth sharing. I'm, I'm kind of taken, I kind of took from some things that I've written and shared on the podcast mm-hmm. in the past. And, uh, for me, I, okay, so I, I just think for me. My um, truth? My truth. <laughs> uh, I, I try to avoid saying that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, it's so hard not to. I just feel like we could do uh, words that you hate that people use. Narrative, my least <laughs> really favorite word. hate it. Unless you're a narrator, it's the literal word, the narrative. That's the only time it's acceptable. When people say my my own personal narrative, I'm like, oh god, it's so annoying. It's so annoying. Yeah. Yeah, I hate it. <laughs> Is there another word? Okay, so in my in my talk, which I need to record uh, my talk tomorrow morning, which just by myself here at the house, because hmm. uh, the recording thing at the church wasn't working, and they want well, they want to oh put up what you put up for. Okay, yeah, they want it recorded somehow to put out on their podcast. Uh, so. I don't know if this is going to go anywhere, but this is all that's kind of been on my mind recently. Okay, so we're in this, we're in this, uh, in this series, and the question that's being asked is, how do we face change? And Matt, the the pastor of this church community that I'm a part of, uh, has been. Uh, we just started into this, so the week before was the first week into this series. And then he had to be gone, so he asked if I would fill in. Um, and so he's going through the uh, Gospel of Matthew and 
looking into the historical context behind that they have just that the audience to whom the gospel is written to uh you know most people think that it's like uh most scholars think that gospel of matthew dates somewhere around 80 or 90 a.d the temple of jerusalem was destroyed in 70 a.d and that had you know stood for 800 900 years king solomon Mm -hmm. built it in 800 bc it gets destroyed a couple times rebuilt um not completely destroyed but um it was always able to kind of be rebuilt but then in 70 a.d you know 40 years after christ's death uh the romans come in and completely destroy it like leave no stone at all and so a lot of jews end up migrating up north to antioch and the gospel of matthew then is written to a handful of those jews who have started to believe in this in this story of jesus and that he is the christ mm-hmm. and so we're looking at this group of people who are facing this devastating change in their life this temple that was a place of security and structure has been totally decimated completely ripped out of their life and the question is how do we face change i would say and sorry i want to hear i want to hear what you have to say i just want to fill in the so so what we're what we're trying as a community to talk about is that what are the temples within our own lives that have stood there for many many years that a lot of times do end up coming down and it's never this thing that we want to have happen or that we can foresee coming down the pipe even but all of a sudden you know you have that health scare or somehow financially you're disrupted or a relationship falls apart and you never saw it coming um and for a lot of people in the CMYK community, they've gone through a crisis of faith, and are, and the 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 structure that they grew up with, belief wise, no longer uh, holds the same weight that it once did, yeah. or is a place of assurance and security for them. So how do we face change? That's kind of what this whole series is about. And mm-hmm. so, okay. To you now, to you, Garth. What? Okay, so, <laughs> well, okay, so two, I think there's two parts of change. Um, there's like the voluntary and involuntary change. I think it's best to voluntarily face, not face change, change yourself, like to be the the force of change, be the change you wish to see in the world. No, but like it's you should be actively seeking out change. I believe, um, otherwise it'll find you, and. And it's mm. not so much like it's not change like change itself is enforcing itself upon you rather than you like going to it. Mm. You could say. Okay. Um, and so you see this again going to New Testament examples like the <laughs> first thing Christ is leaving and he's like get out of Jerusalem do not stay here he leaves they stay and then they get persecuted and then they have to leave so it's sort of like you're gonna have to do it at some point okay. best to do it on your own terms mm. you know. And I think that's true. It's like, you know, you, if there is a problem, it will hit you. You know, it's going to come for you. 
It's just kind of that thing. Like, it's it won't stay hidden forever. I mean, we've talked about that. The dragon that, like, lays there. It's like, it's best to go after it because it's going to come after you sooner or later. Okay. And you can hide from that thing. Um, but not forever. Yeah. So, anyway. Um, what it made me think of is sort of the... Uh, like, I don't know, I started thinking of Magnus Carlsen. Yeah, that's really good. See, I w- my answer to it was that I face change. Initially, I was saying poorly. Mm-hmm. Then, I re- then I changed that answer to imperfectly. But it almost seems that the adjective I would say that you're saying is proactively. Yeah. Which is kind of the best way to do it. I mean, that's yeah. hmm. the kind of stumbling forward, trying to figure things out. And that honestly, uh, like what... Like, when you get into something that you don't know, I think if you're really trying to empower somebody, um, and I think this is something that parents probably should think about with kids, um, is creating in them a sort of ability to problem solve. Like, that to me is almost seems like one of the greatest skills. Because it's like, can you take a situation that you don't know and figure out how you should act? And I think that that's the biggest thing when it comes to change. Like, all right, yeah. what are the things that I can build up in myself that I can take across all these different scenarios and all these different... Um, experiences and and uh, turn into something good. Yeah, you know, and so I think that's aspect. Is that a Jordan Peterson thing there that you're pulling from? Yes, I'm sure. I I'm sure. swear to God, it has to be. He and he and Seth Godin are the same people. <laughs> no, but it's true. I mean, like, because like, I mean, okay. So I think about this in soccer terms. Like, you know, you create systems because like formations and you know tactics to do this thing, and yeah. this is how you work this whatever whatever. But that will. You can't just sit rigidly in that. Actually, I pointed this out. I was at that uh, the uh, service that Tyler was speaking at. It was like, you know, you want the perfect... If you're trying to create an ideal situation or trying to create the best in yourself, you want equal parts structure and equal parts, you know, chaos, you could say, or lack of structure, right? Because you want, you want structure so you don't have to reinvent the wheel every two seconds. Like, if I'm playing soccer or any other sport, I don't want to look up and be like, where is everybody? Mm-hmm. Are they... 20 yards behind me, you know, are they, where are they? I don't want to reinvent the wheel every time I go to paint. Exactly. I want to, like, look up and be like, he's over there. Boom, find him. Yeah. Know, pass the ball to him. I'm painting yeah. within this genre. Exactly. You don't go up and I'm be like, I'm using oil paints. Yeah. I'm going to frame it in this way. You have enough right. structure okay. to where you're like, I, I know what I'm yeah. generally trying to do. Okay. But if you only, only ever sit in that structure, like, again, a sports example, the guy yeah. does the same thing every time. He doesn't move. Yeah. Then the I'm defense. just trying to put this in my own words because you've yeah. said this to me like a billion times yeah, yeah, yeah. and I just need it in my language. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's like, the, it's, uh, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. So, but you, you have to move. Otherwise, like I said, it's too easy to defend. And then it's like the team that tries the same play over and over again. The defenders realize like, oh, they're doing the same thing. All we have to do is to do this. and They'll stop you, you know. So you have to add a little bit of change, a little bit of chaos of like, all right, I'm going to move here. I'm going to change this up. I'm not going to do the same thing every time. So you need to do that as a team, but you also need that in life. You know, yeah. you need a bit of that, like, okay, I have structure. I, you know, I eat this, uh, eat every day. You know, I, I work to make money. I have my f- stable friendships, but then you can't just have that rigid structure where like, I wake up at this time, I do this and then this and then this. It's like, then it gets stale. You feel suffocated. Nothing's different. You don't change because your structure doesn't force you to. You it doesn't know? allow for change. It also doesn't allow for change. Right. And, but then you don't develop as a person, you know. It's yeah. like, that's why I think you should read different, you know, genres. But I don't know, maybe listen to a little bit different music. Sure. just enough to get different influences in you, you know. Because um, the other other aspect is, like, life seems at some level to demand that you grow. 
you know, at some level to, to face change or that it's something necessary for you to do in order to get the most out of life and to enjoy it. Um, and if you don't change, you just stick, stick on that rigid structure of your life, something will happen, which is kind of what Peterson says. And it's probably going to be bad. Like you're going to get sick and then all of a sudden you can't work or, you know, your friends move away or your family, something, something's going to happen. That's going to force you to change. Yeah. So it's better to go at that proactively. Like, all right, what would this be like if, um, all my friends moved away? Can I, can I create my own and sustain my own community? You know, what if I move? What if, you know, what if something happens there? Like, can I build this again? Or am I like trapped and, you know, then you become a slave. You know, that's a, another Jordan Peterson idea. <laughs> if you don't have a no, you, then you become a slave. Like if you can't recreate your, your friendships anywhere, then all of a sudden it's like you're trapped. You can never leave because you're terrified of what will happen. You know, um, hmm. oh, I had an idea that was gone. Oh, dang, it was a good idea too. Anyway, that just that idea. It's better to embrace chaos where you find it to add a little bit into your own life um, rather than uh, basically having chaos confront you. And I think uh, my last point, I guess, or I remembered it was like in relationships. If you're yeah. doing the same thing over and over again and you're not changing, you're just like, this is my structure. I'm like, you will get stale. Or even if you as a person, I think, stay the same and don't kind of grow more in, into your personality, into being more who you are, expressing yourself in greater and greater ways, you will become stale and it'll be boring to your partner and your partner will be boring to you because there's nothing different. Like... Mm -hmm. Do I, you know, do I know more of myself than I did, you know, a month ago or a year ago? You know, do I know more of my partner than I did a year ago? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Are we growing? You know who you're sounding like? Who? Kipling. Really? Just this, like, you gotta, you gotta, like, keep on exploring into the new, like, you're not okay where you are, keep. Yeah, (laughs) see, this is, you're right, okay, so you're completely right. And this is the part that I have a bit of conflict with in Chesterton, but I would expect that Chesterton's right <laughs> because he seems to be right about a lot of things. So there's that part of like, go out, uh, change, experience. You know, it sounds very millennial, whatever. Like, just go out and see the world, man. And I'm like, yeah. So I no. was totally out of your side until I, until I, until, I <laughs> until that out. moment. No, but, but I think, but this is it. It's like, I guess merging the two together, it's sort of that idea. I'm not saying like, go out. You know, go to Paris and just kiss a stranger in the hotel or underneath the Eiffel Tower. I'm not saying that, although I guess you could. But I'm like, no, like the person next to you is unbelievably complex. And that's why sure. I bring it down to relationships. Okay. I'm like, you could stay together. That's why I'm not, I'm, I'm definitely not on the train of like, you know, we're just, man's not meant to be monogamous, man. There's just all these, like, no, no, no. People are infinitely complex and there's just so much to, to experience, but. And so I think well, staying with one person forever will be more than enough complexity. For I think absolutely, and I think that if we think that we have somebody nailed down and that we can put them in a box, like that's a, I guess that's a lack of investigation or curiosity on our side. Uh, one of his lines, Chesterton, in the book, he's like, "There are no un, uh, right, no interesting, exactly. uninteresting books. There's only uninteresting readers." Or uninterested yeah. readers. Yeah. I think that's true. It's like you can't find something in it. You're like there's always something. Actually, C.S. Lewis says a very similar thing. He's like, it's if you can't find anything out of a book, it's because you're a bad reader, not yeah. because the book's not good. Yeah. And I'm like, I think that's true. It's like the same thing in people. Like, you want to learn how to love people the best, 
he's like, love your neighbor. Because that's going to be the hardest person for you to love. Right. Uh, oh, also, here we go. Time out. Things that I don't like. Don't like the word narrative. Um, when people are like, oh, we just need to be kind and tolerant to each other. We just need to be kind. I'm like, that's to me the dumbest thing. Like, I get it. And there's truth to it. But every time I hear it, I'm like, no. You know what? That's really dumb. Why? You don't like your own family. And yet you think you're just going <laughs> to love the world, you know? It's like, it's true. It's like the hardest people to get along with are the people next to you. And like, that's why it's really difficult to do these things. We're like, why can't the world we just respect and tolerate each other? Like, you don't tolerate yourself. Yeah. Like, it's it's really hard. It's like, it's not so straightforward as you think. And it's like, it's very difficult to love your neighbor. That's why I think he says that, you know, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. The two greatest commandments, right? Yeah. The person that's right next to you. But that, that you can't actually, you know, if we're talking about bettering and whatever else. You want to love people or to be the best, you know, lover of people. Then learn to love the person right next to you. Okay, this is this was a note that I took from Chesterton on kind of on uh, on this exact topic. He says the best way that a man could test his readiness to encounter the common variety of mankind <laughs> would be to climb down a chimney into any house at random and get on as well as possible with the people inside. And that is essentially what each of us did the day we were born. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. It's, it's funny. And, and, and he says, uh, or go ahead. No, it's, it's funny when you listen to it that way. It makes it seem life and yeah, really life, just living, seem like the most divine gift that you've been planted in this great microcosm of the universe, of, of people and society, of existence, being put with a family. And you get the chance to learn to live life to the full, you know, in terms of like learning to love and to try and engage with a great, you know, let's say play of life, you know, yeah. but just being with the person that just the random family you got born with. Okay. I want to get back to, so I I was starting to feel you moving towards being like Kipling. <laughs> try to scale it back a little, a little bit with your, with your like oh, change. change and that yeah. there's this something out there. There's this greater being that you can be that's out there. That's just yeah. over the horizon that Chesterton also that, doesn't like that. idea. That, yeah. Right. And I don't like that idea either yeah. because so, and maybe that's then where I would come back to my basically on at CMYK at this church mm -hmm. community, the, the thing, my answer to that question of how do we face change? I said, first I face change poorly because I never see it coming especially if it's something like a temple in my life, a place of security and safety, like how else am I going to face yeah. that than, than the fact that I faced it poor? Like I never get it right the first time. Mm -hmm. But then, okay, but I kind of want to nuance that a little bit and just say almost, I that, that almost doesn't feel completely correct because I think that sometimes I do face change as best as anybody could yeah. face change yeah. especially when a temple falls down in your life so then i move to this idea of that i face it imperfectly and the reason i would land on that word would be that i no matter how i act i always will look back and go you know maybe i did that pretty well but i this little part here i would just I would just tweak this a little bit. Yeah. You know, I go back and listen to things occasionally and I go, whew, like, you know, from the podcast and I go, wow, I, I would tweak that, <laughs> you know, 
that doesn't really resonate with me anymore. Yeah. Like, it's really crazy how, you know, you go back and read your writing from your journal or whatever. Or That's why I don't write something. things anymore. <laughs> be like a month later and be like, well, this guy's an idiot. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> right? So, yeah. so that to me then is, it's like, so then if we face life imperfectly, that that is, I, I, I would just, I am an advocate for that we are imperfect yeah. and that that's okay. And this then is the equivalent of saying the thing that you hate. It's okay. It's okay to it's not be okay. okay. <laughs> but yeah. I would say that that is, the, for me, the core, if, maybe the core of Christianity in that it's, it's not a religion. Yeah. That every other religion is this, it's this structure in which we do X, Y, and Z. We do these yeah. certain religious acts that try to get us yeah. up to being perfect as God is perfect. Yeah. And so that's why I don't take Jesus. I, I, I question whether he's saying that because let me finish. No, no. <laughs> oh, no let me keep, let going, me keep going. So when, uh, to, to me, it's, it's the it's the Christ crucified when Paul goes around and is going to all these different communities. Now, this is also before Paul or so Paul is the first he's like the the first earliest writings when you read the New Testament, Paul's writings are the are the closest to Jesus the the living man um on earth. And at least that that's what most scholars believe, that Paul writes from, you know, I think it's uh, 45 A.D. to 65 or 70 A.D. Mm-hmm. And then you, so he's actually writing before the fall of the temple yeah. in Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the Gospels come. Uh, either right around or right after the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, which is weird because Paul wasn't actually with Jesus uh, when Jesus was alive. He wasn't one of the original 12. He comes along afterwards and he has his encounter with God on the road to Damascus in this, that where he says, he hears this voice that says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And then that's when he turns, and then he is the one who goes out, and he actually does exactly what you're saying, that Jesus is saying that we should... Oh, my gosh. So he actually is the one who goes out and leaves leaves Jerusalem and goes out and starts planting churches. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's going to all these other places that have their own temples. Yeah their own rituals and acts that where you find this similar kinds of rituals where in the temple of Jerusalem, there was a priest who apparently would every morning, um, you know, sacrifice an animal and spill its blood over the altar so that the sun would, because they believe that that's what you had to do in order for God to Mm -hmm. let the sun come up. So it's this, we do X so that Y happens. Exactly. 
And I think that Christianity is a not a religion because it is a critique of yeah. that kind of religious, which I would say is superstitious thinking. Okay. I think you're spot on. And okay. I, I think that's exactly it. Like we're doing a little Bible study now, so we're going through Matthew. The Beatitudes to me are that exact idea. So um, finish, I guess. This is my last idea. I got a little distracted. Our other roommate walked in halfway yeah. through that, and we were like, "Are we gonna? No, bring, that, are we gonna bring her into this conversation? Bring her into the fold?" Left. She won't be part of it. Yeah, we got to wrap this no, up here. That was that was really good. I think that's exactly the point. So um, I think, and it's best to illustrate it. I think in this way, not best. It's can be illustrated. It's a better way to put it. Um, so Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, has a quote, and it really can go both ways. But I, I think it definitely means the the second one. Um, the first one is in peacetime, the warlike man attacks himself, which is true because that's almost the idea of training at some level where it's like, what do you do when you're America? It's like, you're not at peacetime, but you just spend your whole time if you're in the military acting. What would it be like if you were at war? Right. And so, and I think that's kind of the idea. That's the voluntary thing I was mentioning of like, you voluntarily face change. What would it be like if it was like this? What about this? What about this? You voluntarily face change so that. Um, you're not surprised by it. You know what I'm saying? But, the, you know, the, the double-edged sword, the funny thing about it, um, is, and what I think he really means, Nietzsche, when he says it, is that in peacetime, the warlike man attacks himself, which means he literally that. You can't stop fighting, which is more the problem. So you're in peacetime, but you don't know it because you're still attacking, you're still fighting. But instead of fighting this outside force, now you're fighting yourself. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. It's like, well, that's not a way to any sort of contentment or peace. If you're literally just like have no one else to attack but yourself, then it's self-criticism. It's all these different things and you don't actually get to. But you're never good enough. Yeah, exactly. And so, and I think that's the point of the law. You're never okay that you're not okay. It's, you're never okay. You're never okay to be okay. <laughs> no, but that's the point of the law. I'm trying, oh, I can't remember. I really need to memorize these more. But, like, the law can only ever point out to you your insufficiencies. Yeah. That that's it. It cannot save you. It can only tell you what you're doing wrong. But that's why... Oh, let's get the gospel. But, no, that's why it's so profound, though. And like you just said, is that when Christ comes now, it's not about what you can do. And it's not what telling you what you're doing wrong. It's that... Almost pausing that you... What to say? It not only tells you what the rules now are, but that they're possible. So he's like, because the whole time he spends, um, I, I don't, I don't, okay, I don't get that sen- that last sentence. Okay, what the so, rules now are, but that they're possible. So like r- before, r- it was like you can only know that they're possible to follow. Well, yeah, basically that. I mean, okay, he makes okay. the point like unless you're like you're not getting into heaven unless you can, um, your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. It's like you're not getting in. Like unless you're the best of the best of the best, it's not going to happen, right? So it's like, unless you can follow the law to the T in every way. Yeah. So anyhow, but so he comes out and now not only does he unveil a law that's greater, he's like, you heard it said that, uh, you know, you should love your neighbors and hate your enemy. I say that you love your enemies. You know, right. you say, or you've heard it said, don't commit murder. Right. That's a fairly easy thing to, you know, a lot of people have kept. Yeah. He's like, you know, don't murder somebody. You're good. And he's like, no, no, no. Have you hated somebody? Because if you hated, then you've murdered somebody. Right. That's just as bad. Right. Yeah. So now, like I said, the stakes have gone infinitely higher. Right. Where it's like, have you been angry? Well, then you've just committed 
you know, one of the greatest sins. Yeah. Right. So at the same time of pointing out this great um, aspect of life that increases stakes that the law is so much more, it's actually been. Also, what are you going to sacrifice if if anger is on the same level of having committed murder? Mm-hmm. What are you going to sacrifice to get yourself back in right relation with God? You have to kill somebody. Well, I don't even know if that does yeah. it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like it, I right. So it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. Because it does. That according to the Old Testament, the law. It's like, but then the law is insufficient. It can't get you in right standing. Really, and that's the whole point. Like again, like I said, like it just can't. You can point you out, and you can do these things to expiate it. But again, you always have to keep doing it. It's like the world, like man, like you always have to keep doing it. Have to, have to keep doing it. Yeah. So that's why again, Christ is very profound. It's like it's now done. So I think that is the point of like why, I don't know, I guess it, it is this sort of okayness where like the law has not been abolished. I think this is the really weird nuanced part of it. It's not that you can now do whatever you want. That's not the point. It's like that's been sort of fulfilled in that like not only are you at the law, now you're higher. Now it's not that you're just restraining and like tyrannizing over yourself to not do something bad. It's like that you've gone above those bad things entirely. Where it's like now you you know enter into peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. They should be called sons of God. You become the pure in heart. Now the goal is not just to not do bad things. It's to become these, you know, these things. Um, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Or the meek. Uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Like I said, it's not just, it's not the external acting out. It's the internalization of truth the becoming of that thing so what is the thing in that sentence well in this sense i guess i'm not having chapter six and seven where he kind of outlines the rest of it it's like in becoming the best way to put it well perfect (laughs) (laughs) that's okay right yeah, but I mean, so that's the thing, but he outlines it. Well, that, but this is the thing, this is what's funny, because like, he says it as a law, but then while saying that laws at some level are pointless, because they can only tell you what you're doing wrong. So it's the point is like to increase the stakes, but also be like, I don't know, I guess maybe we'll save that for part two. <laughs> Dude, we definitely need to, to yeah. argue about the uh, parable of the talents. Yeah, well, I'm I am on the side of the third servant who... <laughs> Who says, I, I, I didn't do anything with what you gave me because I knew that you were a wicked man who reaps where he does not sow. Mm-hmm. You have attained your wealth through stealing, and I am not going to be a part of this. And then the master says, you wicked servant, and he throws him out into Gehenna, which doesn't necessarily translate as eternal hell but as the dump at the Mm -hmm. outside of hell Mm -hmm. which is to whom that's basically the people out there are who jesus is actually preaching to so anyways (laughs) we should we should return to attitudes till next week we should return to that parable yeah of the talents we should both write on that maybe or something. I think so. Yeah. Well, on that bombshell. Everybody, thanks for listening and uh, be good to yourselves.
What do you so. think? Of, what do you think of that sign-off line? My dad always says, "Be good to yourselves." I like it. I wonder how much we can. <laughs> yeah, I think about because because okay, so I'm really into this idea of that that we're divided in our mm-hmm. own selves, imperfect. To go back to this, mm-hmm. and if we're divided in our own selves and and not whole and complete and solid all the way through this idea that then we are divided by our conscious will and wish Mm -hmm. which is undermined by our unconscious desire Mm -hmm. so then when i say be good to yourselves that's a nice it's just a nice sign off line but i don't know if that's possible yeah (laughs) well it is a similar one I think about because I suppose I suppose sometimes school. sometimes you will be and sometimes you won't. Yeah. I mean you can. Okay. Maybe try to uncover your unconscious desires and the way that they undermine you. It just doesn't roll off. It doesn't roll off the time. <laughs> Thanks for listening, be good to yourselves. <laughs>